0: You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. We know that if spoken language is the desired communication modality for a child with hearing loss, early intervention is critical. But hearing loss doesn't only impact a child's ability to acquire spoken language. Research continues to expand our understanding of the many aspects of childhood development affected by hearing loss, including listening effort, self-concept, and today's discussion, literacy. Dr. Crystal L. Werfel, Ph.D. CCC SLP, is an associate professor in communication sciences and disorders and the director of the Written Language Lab at the University of South Carolina. Her research interests focus on literacy outcomes for children with hearing loss who use spoken language, with particular interest in developing appropriate assessment and intervention approaches. Her research is funded by the National Institutes of Health, and I'm so excited to discuss this topic, and I'm so appreciative of Crystal for joining me today. Hey,
1: Crystal. Hi, Dakota. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this. This is uh, something that, you know, on the outset, like, makes sense, but it's something I feel I know so little about.
1: Yeah, and I'm, I'm really interested and excited to talk to a person uh, who has specific training in audiology about these issues as well.
0: Yeah, I think this is something that I, from what I've read about your research and what you guys are finding so far, this is like really critical in, you know, on an audiology perspective in counseling and being that person who can help with intervention and, you know, progress monitoring. Um, I know, like, I know just literacy is important, but the fact that it's so important for children with hearing loss, it's something I think probably goes, you know, undetected or it doesn't, it kind of flies under the radar for a lot of kids.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So before we get into hearing loss and literacy, can you give me a quick recap on how children with normal hearing, like what is the process of acquiring literacy? Could you like define what literacy is in this field and how a child with normal hearing develops that? Just like whatever your quick recap
1: is. Yeah, sure. So uh, when we're thinking about a child who has typical hearing as, as you're going through preschool and early language development, we have these emergent literacy skills that develop. So oral language is absolutely one of them. And then also things like understanding print concepts, how a spoken language is represented on, on the page in text, and also how to relate the sounds of spoken language to the letters and the, and the spellings on the page. So, um, so during preschool, you really develop these early skills. And then as you enter elementary school, then you really work on combining those skills into first decoding. So learning how to sound out words, learning how to recognize words automatically. And then your language comprehension really affects the way that you obtain meaning from the text.
0: Okay. My wife, she's a first grade teacher by trade. And so I've definitely heard the term decoding before when it comes to teaching her students how to read. So I see. we So we start with that spoken language component and then we, you know, we use that in order to start to make sense of what's happening on the page. Is exactly. that a fair way to put that? Okay. Exactly. Okay. So, with children with normal hearing, I, I know things can go wrong in that way too. Like you have things like dyslexia, mm-hmm. other kind of things. What, what other barriers are just like hearing loss or not things that we see in terms of, you know, challenges acquiring literacy?
1: Yeah. So, there's a model – called the simple view of reading. And it's really, in a nutshell, what I just talked about. So in the simple view of reading, it says that the, the process of comprehending words on the page is the product of your decoding and your language comprehension abilities. So there's there are ways that those can go um, awry focused on decoding. So that would be dyslexia when you have specific difficulty sounding outwards, relating sounds to the text that you see on the page. Um, You could also be what um, it's been called lots of things over the years. So things like poor comprehenders or uh, specific reading comprehension impairment, where the decoding... Sounding out words totally fine for you, but when you get to the point of applying your language skills to the words that you see, then you have some comprehension difficulties, or you could have difficulties in both.
0: Okay, okay, that makes sense. So when we think of a child who has hearing loss who's using spoken language, and I think for the you know for the majority of this conversation, we'll probably be focusing on children with hearing loss with spoken language as their you know their uh, chosen modality. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that literacy – does that same rule apply for them when it comes to developing literacy?
1: Yeah. So, it seems – so, that's one of the things we're interested in in my research program. Um, But it seems that the, the process of reading is perhaps a bit more dependent on the language that you're reading in. So, in English, it's alphabetic. So, this relating sounds to letters is very important. Uh, Because that's the way the system works. So it seems like the system might drive the important skills, perhaps more than the skills that you as an individual have drives your ability to read, although those skills certainly play a role.
0: Starting, So we think of it like with early intervention, the importance of if a child has hearing loss, if spoken language is the goal, we know that as early as possible, we want some kind of intervention, whether that whatever is appropriate, whether it's a hearing aid or a cochlear implant. So, starting at a really early point, we're thinking of spoken language, but it's really critical because though that basis is what's going to be a big driver for what happens in literacy later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the that spoken language basis is absolutely the basis of the language comprehension piece of reading. Okay. And then it it also serves as the basis of decoding. So if you have a if you have the solid spoken language skills and you have um, a, an age-appropriate vocabulary, your semantic network is, um, is well built. And then those sorts of things really drive your ability to start paying attention to the individual sounds of words. So when you acquire lots and lots of words that have similar sounds, so like cat and bat, then your brain has to be more efficient in storing all these lexical items. So it starts to sort by sound. And that's really what's thought to be the driver of um, phonological awareness.
0: Oh wow, interesting. Okay, I did. I didn't even think of how critical that would be, especially with things like phonological awareness and starting to put the pieces of words together. Um, so you mentioned. I'm guessing, like, when, when does the majority of like acquiring literacy take place? Is there a certain age? So for children with normal hearing, is there like a really critical age range for this?
1: Yeah. So so what we see, I'm. I'm going to say third or fourth grade is really critical, um, but I'm going to tell you why I picked that specific time because I think you could make an argument for lots of points over development. Um, Okay. So at third and fourth grade is where we really see in schools – where we have students who, um, with hearing loss or without hearing loss, ha- perhaps were in early language services, early speech services, and, they, um, and they've graduated. So, their language scores have um, improved to the point that they don't qualify for those services anymore. We very often see them back again on caseloads in third or fourth grade, almost always for reading difficulties. So mm. this – so that um, – th- and that shift is really from the third to fourth grade from uh, what we call learning to read. So learning all those early decoding skills and and how to obtain meaning from the words on the page to reading to learn. So after that point, we – in school, we expect you to take your science textbook and read that and learn from learn from the reading. So that's a really critical point for your skills to be sufficient to support that later using reading as the tool for education.
0: Makes total sense. You have you spend so much time just learning how to read, so that you can start to actually learn things from your textbooks and learn things from assignments. I-, I definitely see how that plays into that. I'm hoping we'll get into that a little bit more. That kind of third, fourth grade, and what that looks like for children with hearing loss. But before we get there, going back to you know that like preschool age, what are some of the early literacy skills for children with hearing loss in that kind of preschool age, like? Do those look different compared to a, ch- a child with normal hearing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So that's the question that for the past three or four years in my lab, we've really been focusing on. So um, so we have a study we call the ELLA study, Early Language and Literacy Acquisition for Children with Hearing Loss. And we, in the study, we have 100 children with hearing loss, and uh, about half of them use hearing aids, and about half of them use cochlear implants. And then we have a comparison group of children who have normal hearing. And so we have uh, done language and early literacy assessments every six months over the course of their preschool years. And we've just analyzed the preliminary data. So this is not out in a paper yet, but it will be uh, hopefully within the next year or so. Okay. Uh, what we found is that for the children with hearing loss, for almost every skill that we've measured, so we measure phonological awareness, phonological memory, rapid naming, sort of in this phonological processing category, we measure vocabulary and morphosyntax and complex syntax in this oral language category, and then we measure alphabet knowledge, like letter names and letter sounds, and then also conceptual print knowledge. And... For most of those skills, we see that the children with hearing loss in our study have started at age four lower than their peers who have normal hearing, but they make similar growth over preschool. So they start behind, but okay. but they don't get further behind over from age four to six, which is good news. They also don't close the gap at all. So it's really a, a – there is a – there's a gap at age four and the size of that gap s- seems to say the same for most of those skills. So a couple exceptions, we see real strengths in things like alphabet knowledge where it's letter sound knowledge, letter name knowledge. We see no differences between the two groups for that skill. Also, we're, okay. we're not seeing differences for rapid naming. So that's your ability to pull a phonological code. Like, So we measure it in preschool with um, words, so names of animals that you, would, that you would definitely have in your vocabulary and how quickly can you pull up that name of an animal when you see a picture of it. Uh, and we're, we're not seeing differences in that skill either.
0: Got it. And that seems less like a reading skill. That's more just like a recall kind of skill. Is that is that a fair way to put that?
1: So, yeah, you could think of it that way. So, um, there is a model of reading called the double deficit hypothesis. And there's there's debate in the field as to whether this hypothesis um, applies to children's reading or not. But in it, they the argument is that you... When you think about phonological skills, phonological awareness and phonological memory, certainly when you have difficulties in those areas, it results in things like decoding difficulties. Um, and then oh, there's okay. an argument that the, that your rapid naming skills can vary. And so for some students, there's difficulty with things like phonological awareness, but not rapid naming. And their reading difficulties are, are a bit less severe. But if you have that double deficit in phonological awareness and also rapid naming, you see really more severe deficits.
0: Got it. Okay. So it all definitely is connected to each other in that it's way. All, I didn't like, did consider whole that. The system
1: is all connected. So, and then, So we've also looked at um, predictors of kindergarten reading outcomes, which is very early in terms of measuring reading. Uh, sure. But we, we haven't seen a lot of differences across the two groups. So that's – so earlier we were talking about it seems like maybe the system of the writing that you're learning to read might drive a bit more than your individual skills because we're really seeing that the early predictors of reading look pretty similar across the two groups.
0: Okay. So just help me like summarize that a little bit in my brain. So the early predictors look the same but there's still a gap – is yeah, so of-
1: so what we see is that the children with hearing loss are are performing lower as a group. So it's certainly not true for everyone. We have some children okay. with hearing loss who are performing quite high. We have some who are performing very quite low. Um, but as a group, there's there's um there's a consistent gap over time. But the way that your skills predict your reading outcomes in kindergarten appear to be really similar. So, if you look at the group of children with normal hearing, if you have really strong phonological awareness skills, you're more likely to have good reading skills. And the same is true for children with hearing loss.
0: Got it, got it, got it. So, yes, that that makes more sense to me. When they're four, we can't really assess their reading. We have different skills that we're assessing. And if they're struggling with that by the time they get to the point where they are reading, we see that they still struggle with similar skills.
1: Absolutely. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so really, like, our goal is to identify was to identify skills, perhaps at age four, that we could um, either use as identifiers, so markers for uh, children with hearing loss who will go on to have difficulties in the learning to read process, um, and also to identify what are the skills that are really important for us to focus on in early intervention to perhaps prevent some of those later reading difficulties.
0: That's great. Oh, I'm so excited to get into the intervention and assessment in a little bit. I'm excited to talk about that. But okay, so this might even be a little bit of a tease into that. I'm just so and maybe this is a future research thing. So if they're coming to you, the first time you're assessing them is around age four, right? Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Okay, so if they're already coming into it, and you're seeing a gap, are you already looking into what could be causing that? that gap at age four or is that one of the things that you're going to get into when we talk about intervention?
1: Yeah. Um, So actually we didn't talk about this before, but uh, yeah, that's one of the things that we've really been focusing on. So uh, we have um, our lead SLP on the project. Brittany Gray has been conducting a study um, and so it's under review right now. So it's also not quite out, but will be soon. And um, and so we took our families who are in this study. We have we have long term relationships with these families, and we are um, we had a survey of their early, very early experiences based on the Joint Committee for Infant Hearing guidelines for screening, diagnosis, and early intervention. And what we found is that children who were enrolled in early intervention by six months of age had higher language scores than children who were not enrolled in early intervention by six months. And and the other indicators, like having your screening by one month, having the diagnosis by three months, those weren't unique predictors of language outcomes. And it seems that that six-month early intervention benchmark seems very important.
0: Wow, that's, that's really good to know. It's something that, it, I mean, the general rule of thumb is, you know, the earlier the better, but the fact that we can see this direct impact on language, the earlier we can get that intervention done, especially by that six-month point, that's really phenomenal.
1: Yeah, and I think, and I, I like your point about we, we have this idea of the earlier the better, the earlier the better, and one of the, th- one of the main things that we looked at in this paper was, um, so the current guidelines from the Joint Committee on Infant Hearing are, are one-month of age, you should have a hearing screening. Three months you should have a diagnosis of hearing loss if, if you have hearing loss. And by six months, you should enter early intervention. But there's been talk over over the last several years of, well, so there are a lot of centers around the country that are really successful at meeting this one, three, six benchmark. So what if we tried to push it earlier? One, two, three. So screening by one month, diagnosis by two months, early intervention by three months. So we compared in our group of children their language outcomes at age 4 to 5 if they'd met 136 compared to the children who'd met 123 and we didn't see differences there so okay. it seems like if you're meeting 136 you have the same benefit as the children who are perhaps starting early intervention just a, a few months earlier
0: wow that's both like really interesting and really encouraging um, cuz you're right i mean my my instinct is oh as soon as possible but it doesn't seem like it, it, there's no, you know, distinct advantage that we can see language-wise that comes through if if they're receiving their intervention at three months. Is as long as we hit that six-month goal, it sounds like that's a good recommendation.
1: Yeah, that's I good. think it's a great recommendation, and it, and I think that it. So part of the um, part of our study also is doing interviews with parents about their experiences, and. Um, that early, that early period is really, really difficult for most of our families because they don't have a family history of hearing loss. They weren't expecting their child to fail a newborn hearing screening. And sure. there's really – it, it takes a while to to figure out the process and to figure out like what do I need to do and what do I want to choose? Do I want to choose sign language? Do I want to choose spoken language? Um, and so not feeling the pressure, oh, I have to decide – immediately tomorrow, but I have a few months of a buffer, I think is really helpful for the family's mental health as well.
0: Yeah. And I think that's great too for places because there are centers that can accomplish a one, two, three kind of rule, but there's a lot of places where they can't. And whether it's family transportation to get to a center that doesn't do that many ABRs or doesn't, you know, doesn't do that many hearing aids and it's hard for the child to get in for that, it's reassuring to know that, you know what, we do have this buffer that is really cool. That's mm-hmm. that's so interesting. I, I hadn't heard that before. Um
1: I think you're so, the first person we've told, unless, <laughs> cool. you're a, unless you're a reviewer on that paper.
0: I'm not, unfortunately, but I think I would have appreciated it there too. Um, I am I'm trying to think here. So before we move into uh, like talking about, because I kind of want to get to that third grade, fourth grade, like almost like a, I guess it's not called a critical period of literacy, but it sort of is one. Um but before we get into that, thinking of, you know, it, it's becoming more and more of a common conversational topic, especially in the auditory verbal therapy and audiology worlds, the concept of mild hearing loss slash minimal hearing loss, whether that's unilateral or you know, conductive and it's transient or it's just mild across the board sensory neural and do we fit a hearing aid? I mean, I see, you know, conversations like this all the time. There's new papers coming up that address this kind of thing. Are you guys seeing any of that in your study and kind of the impacts on literacy for these earlier ages?
1: Yeah. So, in, so in the Ella study, we don't have a lot of kids with hearing loss who've made it to elementary school yet. So most of our kids are still in this preschool range. So we haven't been able to look at it in that context. But we have a study that s- takes sort of a a different approach, and we started with children who are in schools that have reading difficulties. So we didn't know anything about their hearing status at all, but we recruited based on, do you have difficulties reading or are you a really strong reader? Interesting. And then we did hearing screenings with all of these students. And what we found is that the rate of failing your hearing screening, if you were a child who met diagnostic criteria for reading impairment, was substantially higher then oh, it's wow. a good reader. So in our reading impairment group, over half of the students failed the hearing screening. And in the, in the, Typical reader group, we saw a a fail hearing screening rate of about 20%, which is what you would expect typically. So we see this really elevated rate of failed hearing screenings. Um, And we didn't do diagnostic testing, so we can't say these students have mild hearing loss or or minimal hearing loss. Um, Sure. But my, my suspicion is that they do because they are second to 12th graders who've never been identified. With hearing loss, so the, so it's logical that they have mild or minimal.
0: That's so interesting, and that kind of fits in too with the current, like probably the biggest problem with the newborn hearing screening you know, protocol across the country right now is that children with mild hearing loss can easily slip through. Um, The screening for, you know, an automated ABR is about 30 dB NHL and oftentimes they'll do OAEs and if you have mild hearing loss, you can pass OAEs. So, a lot, I have a feeling there's this, this, you know, group of children out there that, you know, there's a lot of children being caught through the newborn hearing screening program. It's really phenomenal, but for so many years because these protocols aren't that strict in terms of, you know, ruling out a mild hearing loss at least, they're reaching a point now where they're in schools and and I can see how those mild hearing losses can go undetected and you, you like you guys are seeing there it's in some way related to literacy if they're the ones, you know, who are more struggling with reading and then you have a higher fail of a, of a hearing screening, I think that's a really interesting question to be pursued.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really fascinating. So and the whole study, Dakota, the whole study came about um, completely by happenstance. It wasn't something we were really thinking about, um, but we, had a, we have a relationship with a, a school locally, and it's a, it's a private school, and they didn't have an interventionist on their staff. And they got a new principal one year, and he is very focused on dyslexia in particular, but reading across the board. And he said, wow, we have a lot of students that are really struggling. And we had been doing research in the school for a few years. And he asked if we would be interested in in doing some intervention. And we said, sure, we would love to do that. And we did hearing screenings as part of the assessment because you always do a hearing screening as part of an assessment. And we were shocked with how many of these students who had been referred to us by their teachers for needing extra help with reading didn't pass their hearing screening. So then we set up a study to, look, to compare empirically. Um, but So actually, Dakota, I don't know if you know this about me, but when I was working clinically, I was a newborn hearing screener.
0: Oh, interesting! I didn't know that.
1: So I, so I'm very passionate about newborn hearing screening, and now that I've had years to reflect on the way that we counsel families in that process, there are a few things that I think are really uh, speak to what you said about these mild and minimal hearing losses can really be missed in these processes. So I, so I worked in a NICU in a children's hospital where we did ABRs across the board. So we didn't do OAEs at all. We did ABRs. Um, but we had a lot of cases where initially a baby would fail their hearing screening, but we would come back multiple times. Oh, well, maybe it's just fluid. Maybe they're, maybe they were a little too fussy. Um, and it was, we really had this, like, we're going to help you pass. Like, we're going to make sure you pass. Um, and and we did that. And I think that's pretty common practice. And now as we've been interviewing families, some of our some of our children who are relatively late identified technically passed their newborn hearing screening. But as we've talked to their families, they failed it initially. So the first time through, they failed the hearing screening, but like the folks kept coming back until they were discharged and, and eventually they passed. So so I I don't know, but I've been thinking a lot about is it the case that we are not missing as much of the mild hearing losses as maybe we think we are.
0: Mm, that's a great point. and I know like it's fortunate that someone like you was in that position, but I know more and more it's being outsourced to you know screening companies where the person has you know no c s d background they they might just be this might be like a side job for them um and so without that understanding of what the, what the protocol is for the automated ABR and that it's a click. And so if they've got a a really high frequency hearing loss, it's not going to get picked up. If they've got a mild hearing loss, it's probably going to get missed. And so families don't even get that educational component in the moment. They just, it's almost like a, like a competition. Like we're going to just keep working until we pass. That's yeah. I've also heard that experience before from families. Um, and yeah, I, I'm so glad that you guys are starting to look into this now, and we're we're seeing that number. I wonder where you know where does that move forward in terms of improving <laughs> this situation? Do you have any ideas there?
1: <laughs> well, so I so here in South Carolina, I teach the oral habilitation and rehabilitation course. So one of the things that I have the students do every semester is their in TAm, the um, National Center for Hearing Assessment and Management has uh, has a lovely online newborn hearing screening training. And so I have the students go through that training. And one of their major focus in that is how to counsel families. So a lot of the things that we hear from families is, oh, well, they failed the screening, but they said it was probably fluid or it's not a big deal or it didn't mean they had hearing loss. We hear that a lot. And I think that a lot of times the things we say as in counseling are things like, well this doesn't mean that your child has hearing loss and what we mean is this is not a diagnostic test. I can't tell you that your child has hearing loss, but you need to go follow up with an audiologist. But what families hear in that moment is, "Oh my my kid doesn't have hearing loss. We're good."
0: Wow, that's a great point. And so just educating future screeners, people who are going to be in this world that, you know, the words that we use can really set up a family to, you know, for it to be unexpected, but I, yeah, I think that's a great starting point for sure.
1: Yeah. so that's I, awesome. I, I'm Can I circle back around to something that we said earlier? You said earlier. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so you talked about we're focusing mostly on spoken language today, and that's what my research focuses on. Um, but I, But I think it's worth just saying that when you're thinking about the process of reading for a child with hearing loss who's developing spoken English – as their primary language, and they're translating those spoken English skills to reading written English, that is a complex process for the child with hearing loss. Um, A lot of sound-related difficulties when even with really great amplification, the sound quality is not uh, perhaps as clear as needed to learn. Yeah, the, to find the way
0: that we would put reality. it in some of our classes is you you can make, you can provide them with the sound, but it's still going into a damaged system, Correct. Right? There's only so much we can do.
1: Absolutely. But when you're thinking about a child who uses ASL as their primary language, then we're, we're thinking about all of those things, the sound related difficulties that can go into learning to read and alphabetic should an alphabetic script, but you're also thinking about ASL is, is not signed English. ASL is a language with its own syntax and its own semantics and its own phonology. And so really in that process, we're thinking about not only how does the, the, your sensory system affect your ability to read, but also you're, you're learning to read in a second language. So it's a much more complex process. So it's not one that we study in my lab, but I think acknowledging that those processes are are not the same and that when you're thinking about working with children with who use ASL primarily in learning to read written English like thinking about um, that as a second language learning situation
0: that's a great point yeah I feel like not enough people in the in the classes I teach we we spend a good portion of time talking about ASL and how it's recognized as a true language and the fact that it, a, a child who you know maybe reads and writes in English but primarily communicates with ASL it is a second language and that yeah that's a great point i'd be interested in seeing some of the research that looks at you know how literacy is acquired as a second language in a child who doesn't use a primary spoken language so i guess you guys see a lot of the building blocks between you can you can say a long A and a long E and then kind of turn that into what's on the page. But when you go from something more signed, it's like a completely different system for, for building, you know, written Absolutely.
1: it's completely different. So, um, so if, if folks are interested, uh, one of the researchers I really enjoy reading in this area is Jessica Scott. She's at Georgia state university and she studies um, adolescents who use ASL and this academic language. And, and it's really interesting. So I highly recommend her work.
0: That's great. Thank you for for recommending that. Um, okay, so moving into – this is sort of like a transition between two things. So we have – I think you said with your study, do you have any children who are in that more school-age, third to fourth grade level yet? Um, it sounds like they're kind of transitioning to that point. Is that yeah, true?
1: Yeah, we – for third and fourth grade, we have a couple of our, our kids are there, um, but I do have, I have a study from a few years ago where we focused on third to sixth grade students who use cochlear implants. Okay. We can talk about that one.
0: Yes. So hold on. Before we get into that, Okay. when you're thinking of, you know, your interventions for literacy for children with hearing loss, I'm assuming they're coming in at four years old, and then you said at kindergarten, we're still seeing that kind of the similar gap there. It hasn't gotten worse. It hasn't gotten better. It's kind of the same. So, when you're thinking of these interventions, are you thinking at this age group? Because I mean, like we said, intervention, we want it to be early. Or are you guys more trying to think of designing interventions for the later age group when it's getting caught? Because do you see sort of what my, I know that's kind mm-hmm. of an amorphous question.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. So, um, so I would say the answer is we've done both. We really focus a lot on preschool because that's where we really have, um, that's where we have more information about the skills for this, for the children. So, um, we actually we're the, um, in, we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic and the sure. things that we're thinking about right now are really telepractice related. Gotcha. Um, so thinking about telepractice, but also thinking about how do we take... So we have a really good early intervention for emergent literacy skills for children who have normal hearing. Mm-hmm. And how do we take the principles of those that we know are effective and consider them within the context of a child who has hearing loss? So in the context of the sound-based difficulties that we know to expect, in the context of... Um, less breadth and less depth of vocabulary that we know to expect. Um, And in the context really of syntactic difficulties that we, that we know are there. Sure. that's That's where we've really been focusing and we've identified some, some overriding principles in emergent literacy intervention that can help us modify things that exist already and perhaps that we're using already for other students on our caseload and be really effective with children with hearing loss. So the things that we've identified, um, one of them is repetition. So we see that the children with hearing loss repeating lessons multiple times more than you think is necessary has been really effective. Um, Really when we're thinking about sound-based skills, breaking down the sounds even more than we would for children with normal hearing. So in phonological awareness intervention for a child with normal hearing, we would work on something like segmenting. And the the most maybe that we would consider thinking about the properties of the sounds that we're asking children to segment um, are things like continuance versus stops. But really, with children with hearing loss, we see that this need to break it down even further and work on each sound individually, because like within a word, incidental learning.
0: Got it. Yeah. Well, so within a word, having to break, they need more time to break down each sound rather than having these pauses between words for that phonological awareness. You're saying like almost like phoneme per phoneme within a word. A child with hearing loss needs a little bit more time?
1: So I think time is definitely one thing, but the but the other is really thinking about, okay, well, we're going to work on identifying initial sounds today. So if I was working with a child with normal hearing, I would just get my picture cards or my toys, and I wouldn't pay attention necessarily to what initial sound the words had. At most, I might start with continuant sounds. So sounds that you can produce uh, with your airflow, things like s as opposed to t. Got it. And I, I would start there. But just very broadly, that's what I would consider. But when I am doing that same sort of lesson for a child with hearing loss, I think, okay, today, let's think about sounds that are Visual. Let's start with those. So I like to start with sounds like M or B. Let's think about sounds. Let's think about this continuant versus stop. Let's think about sounds that are early developing, sounds okay. that this child produces accurately. So there's a lot more thinking about the properties of the sounds than you would necessarily do with a child with normal hearing.
0: Got it. Okay, so that's is that sort of um, another aspect of what you guys are looking into when it comes to designing an effective intervention for literacy.
1: Yeah. So that's we we've got some early preliminary studies where we've done single case design, um, and we've done sort of group case studies of classrooms of children with hearing loss, and we've seen really. Um, positive results, but not as good as we would like. So children are making gains, but not necessarily as much gain as we would hope. And so from talking with the teachers who implemented the classroom-based intervention, from looking back at the performance of our children in the the individual speech pathologist-led intervention, um, Identifying like what were the things that really resulted in more learning, and then going forward designing studies specifically based on on those teaching strategies.
0: Got it. Okay, um, so that's really interesting. So, what age are you guys? Are you are you creating your intervention more around those the skills that you're identifying that are? So, I hope I'm still understanding this right, but. Fourth grade, fourth grade, four years old. We have skills that kind of separate these two groups, and by they're hitting kindergarten early literacy, we're starting to see that in you know more like reading skills, not just like phonological processing kinds of things. So is your intervention more tailored to the earlier age or more that kind of kindergarten emerging literacy age?
1: Yeah, so our interventions so far have really been tailored more toward early preschool. So taking an approach of if we can boost these skills early, perhaps you won't need the extra help with reading later so we've we've focused on phonological awareness intervention we've done a little bit with um print referencing so learning how the print and text represents your spoken language and how books work and and those sorts of things and we see really similar modifications being necessary there so like thinking a lot about repetition thinking about um Thinking about book and child and reader placement so that sound is optimal and the book is visible. Um, and then we've also, so my colleague Emily Lund, uh, we, we run the ELLA study together, and she really focuses on early vocabulary interventions. So doing lots of retrieval-based learning, Our, we have a, a current grant from a COVID-19 fund where we're looking at implementing, integrating physical activity during vocabulary learning via telepractice. Okay. To maintain some engagement because the the Zoom the Zoom all day and Zoom school and Zoom meetings is, is really fatiguing. And I, I I imagine that you feel the same way that I do. And sometimes you just zone out. Like it's yeah. just, you hit a wall and you're overloaded. And our kids are doing that too. So thinking about ways that we can maintain attention but also integrate movement that is related to the meaning of the words.
0: That's really cool. And okay. So that's awesome. That's a great implementation of sort of these, these literacy interventions for children with hearing loss. Before we go more on like implementation, because I'm curious, like in a classroom setting or whether it's you know, one-on-one setting or group setting with an SLP. I'm curious more like how you guys see some of these strategies being implemented. But before I get to that, um I wanted to ask, this is like kind of an offshoot. Looking at audiograms of children with hearing loss, have you guys looked at any patterns in terms of like more sloping audiograms have more of an impact or like severity of hearing loss having more of an impact? Has anything been... Haven't looked into that by you guys at this point?
1: So we haven't looked at that. So in our preschool, in the preschool part of our study, we fly out to whatever part of the country that our families live in. So we don't have access to sound booths and those sorts of things um, during okay. preschool because, you know, it's, it's a big burden to ask families to travel to us with a preschool Age child, sure, and we would, and we don't expect that. Um, but but once the children finish first grade, they start coming to us for summer camps, and we have an audiologist on the project who's doing their um, who's doing full scale audiologic testing while they're at our summer camps. Mm-hmm. In a perfect world. In this world, we're not doing that because (laughs) no one wants to travel. Um, But so that's that's information that we really are hoping in the next few years to be able to look a lot at. So in preschool, we have collected audiograms from the families from their most recent visit. But I, I mean, as you know, there is a lot of variability there. So audiologists have different protocols depending on what centers they're at. Um, Families have uh, sometimes not been to the audiologist for a while. So we're not getting really recent information all the time. Um, So that's not something that we've been able to look at, but we are definitely interested in planning to look at that in the future.
0: Cool. I'm looking forward to reading about that. And then uh, do you have children in your study, both hearing aid, uh, users and cochlear implant users? Is it one or the yeah. other? So
1: in the initial part of our study, we had 30 children with hearing loss and 30 children with normal hearing. And so in th- that's a small sample, and we weren't able to do comparisons based on amplification type. But in our, in our larger study now, we do have enough. Um, so those kids are still in preschool, but we're starting to look at the differences in children with hearing aids and cochlear implants. And it's a really complex issue too, because children who have hearing aids typically have uh, less severe levels of hearing loss than children with cochlear implants. Um, But then you're also thinking about the differences in the way that sound works if you're using a hearing aid that amplifies sounds versus a cochlear implant that sort of, you know, bypasses your system.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. I'm interested to see what comes of that too. That's going to be really cool. Um, Okay. So back to implementation. So I've heard a couple of examples. So you have um, one of the ways that you, I think you said that uh, whether it was a kindergarten teacher or the SLP is implementing um, sort of those You already have, you know, interventions for children with phonological processing problems with normal hearing, and then you're thinking of those modifications to those, and then you have this vocabulary um, intervention exercise that you guys are modeling for something through Zoom or you know more teletherapy. What other like ways of implementing these interventions are are you guys looking at?
1: Yeah, So, um, so with phonological awareness, we've really started with, um, so I should, in terms of disclosures, I don't make any money from this program, but the person that developed it is my, uh, was my doctoral advisor. So I have, like, I have a relationship with her, but I don't make any money. Um, But the program that we've used and modified for children with hearing loss is called the Intensive Phonological Awareness Program. And um, it's developed by Melanie Sheely. And she developed it originally for children who were in kindergarten or first grade and at risk for later reading difficulties. So um, so that at risk was really broadly defined as children who were struggling with uh, language and seeing an SLP, children whose teachers rated them as maybe lower performing relative to other students in their classroom on early literacy skills or early reading. So really broad um, really broad characteri- characterization of who it was developed for, but was really developed based on evidence-based principles of instruction for phonological awareness and, and based on the findings of the National Reading Panel from now 20 years ago. Got it. And we've modified that for children with hearing loss with those things that we talked about, repeating the lessons more than you would, having different target words for the intervention, um, thinking about sounds and, and things like that. But children with hearing loss seem like they, made, they develop these skills in similar ways and we need to boost their performance rather than having a really deviant sort of development, which is good news for... I mean, it's, it's really good news for SLPs because we're not having to reinvent the wheel all the time, but taking things we already use and, and think about ways to modify them, which is a, which is a much more manageable task. Um, in terms of print... One of the things that we've really been interested in is um, not just training children directly in these print concepts, but really thinking about how can we effectively train parents to implement book reading that really is not an intervention necessarily, but really focuses on boosting these skills. So basically, when parents read to their children, we've videotaped them, we've watched what happened. With parents typically talk about the pictures or they relate the book to an experience that they've had. So if your book is about going to a pumpkin patch and you've just been to a pumpkin patch, then parents often talk about, "Oh, remember when we did this last weekend and we picked out this pumpkin and and maybe we made a pie with it." I don't know if people make pies. I've made that. I um, people make pie <laughs> like from a pumpkin
0: pie. I've roasted the steeds, but I've never made like a real pumpkin pie from a fresh pumpkin. That's that's beyond can. my skills. <laughs> <enough>. <laughs> um,
1: but so, really thinking about like book reading is something that we really emphasize is important to to all parents. Um, but how can we give you some specific strategies that you can implement while you're doing this activity that you're already doing with your child? So thinking about both how as SLPs and early interventionists and classroom teachers, can we uh, provide intervention and effective instruction? But also, how can we empower parents to do this at home?
0: Got it. And you guys have a great... um resource on the Ella Study website, which is ellastudy.org. And you go to resources tab that I was looking at earlier, that's got these kind of like, it's a really simple infographic, just breaking down techniques. And I'm not sure if this is more directed at SLPs or teachers or parents. um, But I know like as a parent, these are all things that I could utilize in terms of reading, you know, with my child and improving that phonological awareness you know, if they have hearing loss, especially.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so on our website, we, as we have papers come out, we try to keep pretty up to date with having infographics of, of those papers. And then we also um, for, we make particular choices in journals that we publish in that will allow us to post full text. Uh, so not the formatted journal article, but the full text, all of the information that's available for, for free. Um, because that's awesome. Journals are like journal articles are expensive and we, I think that contributes to this research to practice gap that we see. And that research to practice gap is is like not serving children with hearing loss and reading outcomes like on a whole for children who are served under that category in the U S haven't improved since the 1970s. And that is a huge problem. And absolutely. And ha- providing easier access to the latest research is one way that we see we can help play a role in perhaps lessening the gap. So, in all areas of research, I think there's more knowledge than gets implemented in clinical practice. But when you're thinking about when, – when I think about reading outcomes for children with hearing loss, it just – isn't acceptable to me that the things that we're learning aren't accessible to SLPs and audiologists, especially, but particularly parents.
0: Yeah, that's so true. That's and I'm really glad you guys have that ability to make those things available to people who want to use this information, and they should be using this information. Um, so, just to bring it to like a, we're kind of reaching the end of our time here. So, just to bring it to like a more practical end. um, One of the other guests of this podcast, uh, Dr. Melanie Morris, she is a part of a mobile audiology program in Georgia. And one of their critical reasons for starting this program is because they were seeing for children with hearing loss who are reaching third grade and had really poor literacy compared to normal hearing peers. It leads to so many other, you know. negative outcomes for them. Um, Some of the things she was telling me, you know, um, children who don't read proficiently by third grade, more likely to drop out of high school, experience poor health, have discipline problems, perform perform poorly in math, because like you said, we're reading to learn after that point. Um, 85% of juvenile offenders have reading challenges. Three out of five adults in our nation's prisons are illiterate. So when we think of like how literacy just plays so much into so many skills, as an audiologist, I don't really do too much with literacy with the patients that I see. I I try to make sure their hearing aid or their cochlear implant is programmed as best as possible and trying to follow best practices in all those ways. How can I and maybe SLPs who don't work as much with children with hearing loss support literacy for children with hearing loss? Is there anything that you can think of ways that we can be helpful?
1: Yeah, so I think So I was really excited to talk about this with you because I think that one of the key relationships that doesn't happen a lot of times for our children with hearing loss is that their SLP and their audiologist uh, talk about literacy. So I think that as SLPs, we may have the experience that, oh, well, audiology, if I am seeing particular difficulties in speech perception of certain sounds, that's something that I can tell that's something that I could tell you and you could help with programming. Um, But really thinking about this holistic approach to uh, patient-centered care and how can we work together to really support best outcomes. So I think part, part of what we can do is learn more about what, The other person does so when I have a child with hearing loss who comes in for therapy with me what are the things that I'm thinking about and talking about that with audiologists and then for me if my child with hearing loss goes to see the audiologist what happens there like what are the things that you're thinking about are we thinking about similar things if we have a quick chat can we identify things that neither of us on our own perhaps would have come to but when we're talking together we're like oh that could be like I'm seeing this and I hadn't really thought about it. But now that you said that, what if we tried this approach? So I think communication is a huge thing that we can do to, to promote patient-centered care. Um, the other thing that I think is that me speaking as an as an SLP is thinking about literacy for children with hearing loss is – Similar to literacy for children with normal hearing, but there are also these other factors to take into account, and often those are audiological factors. So, how do I, how do I learn more about that if I don't typically have children with hearing loss on my caseload? Um, so if you if you're a school SLP in a rural area, then it's likely that you have only one or two children with hearing loss, if any at all. So how do you take this really complex process that you don't encounter all the time and consider what are the things that perhaps would be necessary to to think about in a, a somewhat different way based on these sound based? Things that we know will be difficult for a child with hearing loss. So I think, like, really understanding how the amplification works can really help becoming comfortable with how to troubleshoot devices if there's, Absolutely. So if there's feedback or if there's um, a battery that's dead, if you notice that you're. If you're, you notice the student has tubing that's cracked and um, so how do, how do you troubleshoot those things? How do you do listening checks? How do you ensure that the access to sound is where it needs to be? And then how can you leverage that access to sound into literacy learning?
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. The only, yeah, those are all things that I think are so critical um, for the SLP, the future SLPs, I should say. That I teach, we spend a lot of time talking about how to do a listening check because it's so simple, but it's it can directly impact how their session goes. You know, it can have a really severe impact, and it's something that I feel like um, it, it doesn't take much to learn it, but once you know it, it's a really critical skill. And the only other thing I'll add to that too, that's all so true about that audiology SLP, you know, connection, that communication. But also when you want the family to really like absorb something and learn something, having two different people teach them kind of the same thing, it sticks better. Like when you're, when you can kind of tag team and say, okay, the family is really struggling with improving their, you know, time reading together as a family, we are both going to actively make an effort to talk and model that for them. And like, it's, it's just like, you know, when you get that reinforced from multiple sources, you tend to have, it tends to stick a little bit better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so, um, I'm going to turn the tables and ask you a question, which I haven't done yet. So as SLPs, what what could we ask audiologists? What are the questions that are important for us to know? When we get an audiogram or a report from an audiologist, what are the important things to focus in on?
0: That's a great question. So, oh man, man, that's a really good question. So I would say a couple of things. So one having there there's so much about what SLPs do that to most audiologists definitely including myself is like pretty mysterious. We start together as undergraduates, but honestly once that split happens in graduate school, like even some of the terms you are using today I'm like I remember learning about, you know, phonological edu- like progress and those kinds of things, but man, it's been a long time. So Fe- feeling like you can educate us, I think I'm definitely open to being educated on all things. If you could say, hey, they're really struggling with their, you know, fill in the blank, and then also kind of providing a breakdown of what that looks like practically for them can be really, really helpful. That's great advice. Um, yeah. And then beyond that, like when you get a report, uh, one of the things again that I that that I teach the master students the audiogram is like such a I feel like in reverse the audiogram is so mysterious to a lot of SLPs but it's really not that complex and I think understanding you know this kind of configuration of hearing loss if you're starting to see mistakes like you know with more. Um, Uh, sibilant sound, like your high-frequency speech sounds, and you know that that's a high-frequency sound, and you know this child has high-frequency hearing loss, or you're worried there's been a change because you see a change, that little bit of a basis of understanding like what the audiogram represents, I think, can be really critical and helpful for you guys in communicating to us what your concerns are, rather than just saying, like, using... Strictly like speech-related terms to say, hey, they're they're not having as much progress here. Saying I might be worried about their high frequencies because of this, and even if you don't like fully understand that concept, just giving us the right guidance in terms of how we can possibly help with that. And then the last thing that comes to mind, and this is so critical, and this is something that I, I try to talk about anytime I'm working with a kid who sees an SLP. Like this is one of the things I talked about them with them first is. SLPs just must be like way better at making kids happy and play along. Like that's just got to be a fact. I love working with kids like and I feel like I'm usually able to get a lot done. But you guys have way better like... Uh, you know, resources and toys and you can get at what a child really likes to do because it's so critical in those those therapies that you tap into something that's interesting to them. So, if you share that with us like, oh, this kid loves trains or they love this song or whatever, whatever toy that you know is going to be really effective because a lot of what I do, especially in the booth, relies on participation. And so, if the child doesn't care about the Donald Duck toy I have or the light up Old McDonald had a farm, or whatever it is, then I'm not going to get anywhere. And some parents don't even know that about their kids, but their SLP knows. So I think sharing that can be really helpful. Going either way too, like if I start to see a change, and I'm like, oh, they really were into the light up toy this time, or Are they really like this, and sharing that on the other end too, I think can be really helpful.
1: Yeah, I th- I think. All of that is really great advice. And it, and it really dovetails with what we've heard from parents. So um, so as we've been doing interviews with our parents who've had really good experiences with their audiologists, with their early interventionists, with their SLPs, with their school system, the families that have really good experiences and, and have positive outlooks on their child's treatment, the things that really have... Uh, emerged in these interviews is their, uh, their, their treatment team talks to each other. They communicate with each other. They feel like, uh, you know, the SLP, if they have a question, they make a call to the audiologist or their ENT will call the audiologist and say, I'm seeing this. Do you see this thing too? Um, so we've seen that communication and we've also seen parents talk about um, having – professionals who are really knowledgeable not only about hearing loss but also about their child. And so I think that it, that exactly hits on what you were saying about how do you how do you figure out what works for this individual child because it's not going to be the same across even across siblings. It wouldn't be the same.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my gosh, I feel like there's so much to keep talking about here, but we are just about out of time. <laughs> So I'm gonna we're gonna absolutely have to have you back to talk more about especially this AUD SLP connection because I feel like there's a lot there. Um, and I'm also interested in having you back hopefully in about a year and hearing you know what the progress is so far. oh
1: yeah absolutely um, I'd love to.
0: Especially talking about, you know, this teletherapy stuff. There's so much exciting things. So um, if people wanted to reach out to you, is there an email, the, the, the study's website? How can people find you?
1: Yes. Yeah, so we have, um, I think we have a contact form on the study website, but my email is probably the easiest. So it's just my last name, werfel at sc.edu.
0: Awesome. Awesome. And the and the Ellis study is E-L-L-A-S-T-U-D-Y.org, that's right? right. Ella study.org. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Crystal, thank you so, so much for joining me. This has been an absolute pleasure and so, so insightful.
1: Yeah. I Thanks, Dakota. This has been really great.
0: Awesome. Give me just a minute. We're going to switch over to questions. Okay. okay. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating this podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to SpeechTherapyPD.com slash ear. That's SpeechTherapyPD.com slash E-A-R.